Thanks to Slack for supporting this episode of Motley Fool Money. Slack is a messaging app that brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. Support also comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, from Supernova, David Kretzman, and from Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer Andy Cross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Best-selling author Scott Galloway is our guest, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with a tale of two banks. Wells Fargo's third quarter profits fell 18%, while Bank of America's third quarter profits rose 13%. Not surprisingly, B of A shares doing a little better on Friday, Jason. Uh, Wells Fargo uh, racking up some legal fees there. Is <laughs> discreet, that discreet fees. We'll we'll talk about that. Um, it, you know, it's been about it's been a little bit more than a year since the news broke of the fraudulent accounts. Uh, we talked about it a lot when it happened. I think I basically came to the conclusion that we were going to make a lot of noise about it, disapprove of it, and then everybody was going to go about their business and the stock was going to be just fine. And I think that's because people, generally speaking, are lazy in relationship to in relation to how sticky these bank accounts are. Uh, and fast forward to today, the stock is up twenty percent since this news broke. So it seems like uh, everything is going to be okay in that in in regard to that. The metric uh, we were looking at. A year ago, when this happened, started following total average deposits because I think that would be a good indicator as to whether people were really serious about closing their accounts and putting their money elsewhere. Uh, total average deposits were up four percent from a year ago. Bit more modest on a sequential basis, but the bottom line is that people are not, in fact, closing their accounts. It figures uh, that that they're they're doing a good job of at least keeping people in there and apologizing, and, and I guess they're being taken somewhat seriously. I, I don't think replacing Stump with Sloan was. The right move, honestly, because Sloan's been there since like '87, so he was part of all of this mess to begin with. But obviously, they are recovering. Obviously, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it apparently, just doesn't matter, right? Wall Street's going to give him a pass eventually. Uh, it is a stock that has done very well still over the last five years. Although, if you compare it to something like Bank of America, uh, Bank of America has outperformed it handily. That has come, not surprisingly, over the past year. Let's move on to Domino's. Third quarter results were highlighted by the fact that Domino's grew same-store sales for the 26th quarter in a row, and somehow, David Kretzman, shares falling this week. Are they are expectations maybe just a tad high for Domino's? Maybe just a tad high, and they actually have 95 consecutive quarters of international same-store sales growth, so that's almost 24 years now. So, really, incredible numbers for any company, let alone a restaurant, in a time when a lot of restaurants have been struggling to grow traffic and sales over the past couple of years. And a lot of credit goes to CEO Patrick Doyle, who came in around uh, the end of 2009, 2010, and he really transformed the brand, acknowledged mm -hmm. that our product isn't that great, uh, we need to reinvest in, in the brand, uh, put, put more focus on technology and our digital efforts. 
and they're still opening a lot of stores. They've opened nearly 1,200 stores over the past year. Uh, they're rolling out a loyalty program called Piece of Pie. They'll be uh, rolling that out more <laughs> later this year and putting more focus on that. So a lot of things clicking for, for Domino's, and they still have relatively low market share when you look at that global pizza market, so still room for them to grow. And two things, uh, Chris. The stock has done really well this year. It's up more than 30%. So not too surprising when they come out with 8% comp store growth versus, say, 13%. I mean, like the stock may sell off a little bit, but what they're really doing well, Domino's in particular, but a lot of the pizza chains are they are really embodying the best of of um, automation, getting the technology right, and making sure people can get their food and get it very quickly and do it very simply and with great convenience. That's hugely important in that business, and we're seeing this more and more in the in the casual food and fast food business. And one of the things we've talked about before with other restaurants, and we'll include Starbucks in that group, the challenge that a lot of them face, the traditional ones, is as they ramp up their mobile ordering, it in some ways competes with the people who are actually coming into the stores. Domino's basically has never had that problem. No one's actually going to eat a pizza at Domino's. It's always been a delivery service. So, their ramp up to mobile has been so much smoother than everyone else's. Yeah, Domino's, mo- most of their sales are either delivery or carryout. So, very few people will go to the stores. They have done a, an entire remodel of their stores in North America. Now, they're doing a remodel internationally as well. So, they are becoming a little bit more like a fast, casual operation where you can see the food being prepared. You can sit in the restaurant if you do. But most people, yeah, they're, they're just eating this at home. And Domino's plays right into that. And can we recognize the fact that this is National Pizza Month? I mean, mm. I'm just throwing that out there. Folks, get out there, support your local pizza joints. <laughs> your and, local and, and we'll go back here uh, next quarter and see how they've, how they've been able to embrace this opportunity. Isn't Halloween something like second in yeah. terms of the day that the most pizza is ordered? I think the Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday is usually number one. I think Halloween is second because yeah. parents don't want to deal yeah, with my that. Fa- my family does every year. Food. We order pizza, have it yeah. delivered, and boom, we're done. Nice. Delta Airlines on the rise after third quarter profits came in higher than expected, which is pretty good when you consider the impact of the hurricanes, Andy. Yeah, I mean, it would have been a little bit better had the hurricanes not um, unfortunately hit. I mean, uh, 45% of Delta's revenues, U.S. revenues, are tied to the Southeast and 20% specifically tied to Florida. So, you know, overall they're seeing some some nice little gains. The the, the big hurt is the fuel costs. The fuel costs um, which are about 20% of total operating costs um, were up 8% over the quarter and they expect that to continue. So the fuel costs which are a big part of the airlines um, picture towards profitability, that's going to hurt this year. But overall, like Delta in particular, but the airlines in general is one reason why why um, Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett bought into it and they own 7.5% of Delta stock. They're just finally getting the operations right and getting the scale correct, and they're showing um, some nice dividends in that in both the stock and the business as well. It didn't get a lot of attention, but Delta rolled out the newest version of its app. And uh, Delta now, if you have the app, it automatically issues your boarding pass 24 hours before your flight, so there's no more check-in process. Yeah. I can't see how all the other airlines don't immediately follow suit, although Southwest Airlines makes, I guess, a little bit of extra revenue by getting people to pay for that. 15 bucks. It'll be interesting to see if they can 
continue with yeah, that. Yeah, it'll be really interesting because the check-in is a key touch-in point with travelers to be able to upsell them, maybe into an upgrade, um, buy more leg space, you know, whatever it might be. So if they are now automatically doing that, Delta's doing that, and Lufthansa over in Germany has been doing this, I think, um, f- for a while now. So Delta's not exactly the first, um, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out to those, those ancillary fees that they can get from um, passengers. Mercado Libre is often referred to as the Amazon of Latin America. Shares of Mercado Libre fell 12% on Thursday on reports that the Amazon of the United States may be expanding its presence in Brazil. What do you think, David? Well, the the funny thing here is that this shouldn't be all that surprising because these rumors have been floating around even from the same Brazil publication uh, since the summer. So, in in June, is uh, reported that the Amazon marketplace might be coming to Brazil in the future months. Another publication, the Brazil Journal, sort of speculated that that would happen in 2018. So, this isn't anything brand new, but obviously, anytime you're going head to head against Amazon, potentially that's something to be to, to have on your radar. But we, we can actually look at a case study of how Mercado Libre has fared against Amazon looking at Mexico, where Amazon has operated for the past three years. Mercado Libre has been there since 1999, so they have a bit of a head start in Mexico and pretty much everywhere else in Latin America, including Brazil. But uh, over the past seven quarters, Mercado Libre's revenue has accelerated each quarter. So that that's despite Amazon ramping up its efforts there. Amazon rolled out Prime Mexico in March this year. So... Despite the competition from Amazon, Mercado Libre is still doing well in Mexico. And I think a key to that is that they, they have that head start with that e-commerce ecosystem. They have a, a payments platform, Mercado Pago. They have shipping and lo- logistics through Mercado Envios. A lot of other services that go into that marketplace ecosystem. Yeah, I got a few questions about this on Twitter. And I think you have to look at it from the perspective of you never want to dismiss competition from Amazon, right? I mean, they, they are formidable in, in virtually everything that they do. But by the same token, let's also not dismiss what Mercado Libre has built to this point using that very same blueprint and uh, also with a founder leader that is still very much invested in the company. So, uh, again, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for getting sort of that first mover status in that in that part of the world. And Brazil uh, really, really is what is going to dictate a lot of that company's gains uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Brazil makes up over half of Mercado Libre's revenue. But only 4% of total retail sales in Brazil uh, come online. So that's still a market that's growing very quickly as more people in the region get access to the internet and start buying things online. So I don't think it's even a winner-take-all market. There's not going to be just Mercado Libre or just Amazon. So I think there's room for both of them to compete. Do you think part of what we saw with shares of Mercado Libre falling on Thursday has to do with the run that the stock has had in the same way that Domino's has had this great run? And so falling just short of perfect means some people are going to pull back? Yeah, the stock, even after this drop, is still trading for 10 times trailing sales. So, so expectations are high. The valuation is at a premium. So, this kind of volatility should be expected. Coming up, the culinary innovations you've been waiting for have arrived. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I want to say thanks to Slack for supporting this week's episode of Motley Fool Money. Slack is a messaging app that brings together all of your team's communication giving everyone a shared workspace where conversations are organized and accessible. Slack allows you to organize your team with real-time messaging, video or voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives all in one easy-to-use app. And I can tell you it's easy because we've been using Slack at The Motley Fool for years. It has dramatically cut down on our internal email. Slack saves you time, and it makes you more productive. You can 
drag and drop file sharing that works with all the apps you already use, like Salesforce, Zendesk, Google Drive. Plus, you can tailor Slack to work with over 1,000 apps. And with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync seamlessly, you can always pick up where you left off, no matter where you are. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, David Kretzman, and Andy Cross. This week, AT&T revealed the company lost 90,000 video subscribers in the third quarter. AT&T owns DirecTV. And Andy, just one more data point for cord cutting. Yeah, another one, Chris, that the hits, and Comcast will probably report the same when it reports, probably lose about 150,000. And the trend is not good. I mean, this is a little bit worse than what they did, what AT&T did last um, quarter when they had a drop of about uh, 200,000. Because if you add in what they got with um, DirecTV now, the drop would have been closer to 390,000, not just the 90,000. So this is a shift of um, consumer tastes but also the big concern for, for these companies um, is that the profitability for those bundled subscribers is so high. I mean, just good revenue for those companies as, as we all start to shift to more over-the-top uh, opportunities and offerings from these companies, the profits just start to eat into um, the uh, the uh, parent companies like AT&T and Comcast. And it's one reason why AT&T is going after uh, Time Warner with that $85 billion monster deal to help distribute some of their some of their um, their revenues around. So, yeah, the trend is not good. And, uh, you know, I don't think any of us are like, that trend is over. That trend is going to continue for the foreseeable future. And uh, for all we talk about ESPN, we should probably point out, not a great week for Fox Sports, which uh, paid $425 million for the rights, the broadcast yep. rights to the Men's World Cup in 2018 and 2022. And uh, here in the United States, I don't know if you, you noticed this, Andy, the men's team won't be attending. Yeah, it's not. It's not good for Fox Sports. It's not good for men's soccer. It's not really good for for soccer here in the United States too, which is obviously so many of our kids um, play and, and enjoy. So, but this is the risk that when you start to do programming and content, still is so key. Although distribution, as we've seen with Netflix, continues to get more and more important across the board. Again, the Time Warner um, AT and T deal. But the content cost that these companies are laying out, and then you have the risk factor on the end, there's some big tail risk that investors have to concern themselves with with when they think about investing in these content companies. Shares of Coach fell on Wednesday, with the fashion retailer announcing it is changing the name of the company to Tapestry. Coach is the parent company of Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman. i got to say, Jason, I I don't think I hate this. Well, it's not trunk. It's not. It is not. Let's trunk. start there. That's a low this bar. Isn't trunk. Um, I th- I think that honestly, I think you're right. I, th- I think I agree with you. I think this is as big of a deal as you want to make of it. And at the end of the day, for me, it was more about entertainment value than anything else. I mean, I got a lot of great gifts on Twitter, uh, sort of responding to initial reaction. But this any, makes anything you can share. Uh, well, because this isn't a visual medium, maybe I'll catch maybe you after the show you. about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, when you look at Coach over the past five, six, seven years, and the way the company has changed, I mean, this really 
actually does make sense when you consider their strategy. I mean, they're becoming more than just one brand, and they don't want to lever the company's ID to just that one coach brand. I mean, it's Coach Stewart, Weitzman, Kate Spade, and whatever else they buy in the future. And I'll I'll bet you dollars to donuts that they do make another acquisition or two here uh, in the near future as they become more of a brand house, so to speak. And management sees this ultimately as an eighty billion dollar market opportunity. They're bringing in less than five billion dollars in sales annually. So again, I think there's plenty of opportunity there. This does not obliterate the coach brand. It's changing the name of the company. When I walk out of this office today, Chris, my coach briefcase, it's still going to be a coach briefcase, <laughs> and I'm going to be feeling really good about that. Yeah, the, the the company still produces over half a billion dollars in free cash flow annually, and there's one and a half billion dollars of net cash on the balance sheet. Yeah. So I, I would expect them to deploy that in future acquisitions and brand targets going forward. Well, and if nothing else, they'll have to spend some money on new stationery. Sure. They've already changed the website. <laughs> Arby's has the meats, and that now includes venison and elk. Later this month, Arby's is offering venison sandwiches nationwide and a limited edition elk sandwich at just three locations in Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. So we're going to need our listeners in that area to do some research for us. Not to be outdone, Tim Hortons is offering a buffalo latte at locations in Buffalo, New York. The drink will be made with espresso, steamed milk, and buffalo hot sauce topped with whipped cream, and I'm quoting here, and a dusting of buffalo seasoning. I feel like for that sandwich, you got to cue in the northern exposure music. You <laughs> David, you got to eat one of these things. What are you going with? Well, I'm vegetarian, so I think I'm going with the uh, buffalo coffee latte. And it's a latte, so hey, why hey, not? Jason likes his chicken spicy, not his latte. I'm going sandwich. Yeah, um, I very rarely eat meat, but I'm not going anywhere near that latte, so I'm sticking with one of the meat options. Let's go to our man behind the glass, Steve Broido. Steve, uh, are you hungry or are you thirsty? I'm neither. Can I be neither? <laughs> I'm just glad those. this isn't Panda Express. That's all I can He's say. just glad to be alive. <laughs> all right, let's get to the stocks on our radar this week, and Steve will hit you with a question. David Kretzman, you're up first. What are you looking at? I'm going with Dave & Buster's. Ticker is Play, P-L-A-Y. This is part restaurant, part sports bar. They also have arcading games, which now make up 57% of their total sales. That's a diversified business, and those arcade games are, are high, high margin as well. They have 100 stores right now. Management thinks they can open up 200 stores in North America in the coming years, so still some expansion opportunities there. The stock has come down after they last reported earnings a couple months ago, even though they raised their guidance for revenue and earnings. Like a lot of restaurants, they're lowering their same-store sales guidance, their comps guidance. But now the stock is trading for a PE of about 18, a reasonable multiple, uh, still opening new stores and growing sales and earnings. So I'm, I think it's worth a closer look. Steve, question about Dave & Buster's? Uh, my, I'm actually going to Dave & Buster's for my kid's six-year-old birthday party. Uh, my question is, is this for kids or adults? I don't know what this store is for. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, hey, everyone eats, everyone plays some games, so mix it up. Bring your Purell. There you go. <laughs> Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Yeah, taking a look at Teladoc. It's one I've uh, talked about here before. Ticker is TDOC. Uh, talking this week with my guy Rory over at Rubicoin about this one. And uh, this is the internet healthcare provider, right? They're basically taking healthcare to the internet, making it a little bit uh, easier to deal with than having just to go into the office. But they made a recent acquisition of Best Doctors, which I think is going to be very complimentary to their business as it adds a lot of value to their network of providers. Uh, so, small but growing company, a lot of value in the network that they're growing. They're scaling healthcare, adding efficiency and privacy to a system that is just in dire need. And I think all of this kerfuffle here with the uh, healthcare questions uh, we're reading about uh, this week it might present an interesting opportunity here for the stock. 
Steve, question about Teladoc? Is there an opportunity in emergency areas like Puerto Rico, for example, where there's no electricity and, and perhaps Teladoc could serve some medical needs there? Uh, I think there is no question about that. And that really is, I think, the attraction of this business is you're taking a, uh, a network of providers and basically giving them the entire world thanks to the Internet. Andy Cross, what are you looking at? CSX, the third largest uh, railroad company here in the United States, reports earnings on Tuesday. New CEO Hunter Harrison, who came in in March under great fanfare, a huge pay package, um, did wonders at um, Canadian Pacific and Canadian National to turn around CSX. Stock reacted very positively. The company's been under a little bit of fire recently because some of the operations haven't worked as smoothly and some customers are starting to complain like Cargill. So I want to hear what he is saying specifically about what he's doing to fix some of those issues. Steve? We're hearing a lot about autonomous driving. Why aren't trains autonomous? It seems like they have very little turning to make. It's one track. Can't they be automated? That That is very true, and that will likely um, be a push going forward. The, the difference, though, is the person driving the train relative to a person driving a car is a much smaller part of the operations in a train. Three stocks, Steve. You got one you want to add to your watch list? Well, I'm literally going to Dave & Buster's, so I'm going with Dave & Buster's. All right. Nice. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. Up next, Scott Galloway on the hidden DNA of some of the world's most successful companies. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. I don't have Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Google is God, Facebook is love, Apple is sex, and Amazon is consumption. So writes Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and author of the brand new book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. He joins me now from New York City. Scott, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. These are not just four of the biggest companies in the world. They are also among the most heavily covered by the media. And I'm curious, when you set out to write this book, what did you think you were going to find, and what did you actually find? So, I'm a tremendous admirer, like most people of these companies. I would say the biggest surprise is just how dominant they are. We know they're influential. We know they're they're great at what they do, but when you actually add up the numbers, they're market capitalization combined is approaching the GDP of India. And when you look at the respective markets they're in, they literally are not only kind of dominating the markets they compete in, but they begin disrupting markets before they even enter them. And they're able to kind of dominate or, if you will, grab the mic away from every other business and have sort of co-opted old media into being their, um, you know, their outsourced investor relations department. And I would say, finally, it feels as if it's a society we no longer worship at the altar of kindness and character. We worship at the altar of innovation, and these companies have taken on a almost like a Jesus-like status in the eyes of the consumer. So, in terms of the competitive landscape, is the is the ball game, for all intents and purposes, over? Because we've certainly seen over the last fifty years various companies. And I'll just pick two from the tech industry, IBM and Microsoft. At various points, they were the dominant player. And not that they aren't still big companies, but they're no longer on top of the mountain. How much longer do you think the the reign of these four companies will last? Yeah, it's a fair point. About the time guys like me saying these companies are becoming too dominant is usually about the time they start to go into structural decline. Uh, Having said that, I think each of these companies doesn't show really any signs of letting up or at least increasing their market capitalization. 
However, I, I think you can distinguish a little bit between the four. If we were going to do a sequel and call the book The One, I think the company that is dominating not only its respective sectors, but beginning to eat into the other three's businesses is Amazon. And that is, if you look at where Amazon butts up against Google and search, 44% of product searches were, were conducted on Amazon. That share has grown to 55%. If you look at where they, Amazon overlaps with Apple and streaming video during prime time, it's gone from the number seven player to the number three. Uh, $4.5 billion devoted to original content just behind Netflix. If you look at where they compete with Apple and computer hardware, the most innovative products of 2015 and 16 weren't the Apple Watch or the Apple Pods, but Amazon's Echo device. And you can kind of go on and on and on. Uh, it looks like Amazon is literally running away with it, if you if you will, in terms of being the most dominant company in business. Now, having said that, if you have a child in a Developed market, affluent household, I think a life expectancy now is near 100 years old. None of these companies will be around in 100 years. Of the Dow 100 from 100 years ago, only 11 have survived, and as the business cycle speeds up, so will the mortality rate. But in the short term, I don't see any stop, anything stopping these firms other than maybe regulatory intervention. I want to get to regulatory intervention, or at least the possibility of it, in a minute. But I'm curious if at least part of what makes these companies so dominant right now is the fact that if you look at each one of them, the journey to where they are right now in terms of their dominance is not this boulevard of unbroken green lights. They've all had pretty significant business challenges along the way. With you know, with Amazon, it was, well, they don't make any money, and how can they make any money? And they pretty quietly were working on Amazon Web Services and, and made that the financial engine of their business. With Apple, right out of the gate with the iPhone, there were a lot of people saying, well, they're never going to be able to maintain the pricing power uh, and they have absolutely done that and more. Facebook, when it went public, was not making a dime off of mobile advertising, and they have answered that challenge. And with Alphabet, with Google, for so long it was seen as a one-trick pony, and even though it was one heck of a trick, they've managed to turn YouTube into an incredibly dominant search engine on its own. I I almost think if you're any other business looking at competing with these four, it's got to be so dispiriting. Yeah, you, again, you, you bring up a lot of issues. A, a lot of people focus on how how just aggressive these companies are in terms of taking big bold bets, which they can do either because they're so incredibly profitable, or because um, you know they have such access to so much cheap capital that. What would be a devastating disappointment for most companies is barely even a speed bump. These guys are able to access, I mean, if you look at, so you talked about Apple. Apple has pulled off the impossible. They've, they, companies are usually the low-cost producer and go for volume or the premium-priced product and go for high-profits niche. What Apple has done, no company's pulled off in history, and that is they're both a low-cost producer. They have the best-selling phone and as a result, are able to extract the best value in the supply chain. At the same time, it's the premium price product. So the auto equivalent would be an auto brand with the margins of Ferrari and the production volumes of Toyota. These, you know, most profitable company in history will do double the profits at this quarter than Amazon has done its entire history as a company. Now, on the converse side, Amazon purposely runs its company at break-even. And has changed the kind of changed the relationship between companies and the investment markets in that it's trained the market 
or specifically investors, to, to value vision and growth over profits and has been getting, given sort of the mother of all hall passes in the world of business in that it doesn't have the profit expectation that other companies have to live up to. So as a result, it can reinvest $0.100 cents on the dollar in the consumer value proposition as opposed to most companies have to get to reinvest 60 or $0.90 cents on the dollar in terms of the actual value to the consumer. So different dynamics, but we have companies, you know, in the case of Apple, we've never seen a company this profitable. And in the case of Amazon, we've never seen a company with this market capitalization that, that, is, that is this unprofitable. You mentioned the regulatory landscape. At this point in time, who do you think is the betting favorite in terms of the risk of being broken up? So, the one again, a, a, a thoughtful question. It's a com, that, that is complicated. That from an antitrust perspective, the one that is most vulnerable is Google because it commands a 90-plus percent share in a lot of the markets, whereas the rest don't have nearly that type of dominance. And when you're talking about the search category where Google has a 90-plus percent share in a lot of its markets, the search market is now a bigger market by dollar volume than the entire advertising market of every nation with the exception of the U.S. So from traditional antitrust standards, you would say Google. Now, having said that, what Amazon is now able to do in terms of looking at industries and disrupting them before it even enters, that is probably going to create a decent amount of tumult or anxiety in Washington and Brussels between the time it announced the acquisition of Kroger's, the largest pure play grocer in America, and when it closed, Kroger shed a third of its value. On just this past Friday, when Amazon hinted they were going into the uh, potentially into the pharmacy or drug drug business. You had not only drugstore retail stocks, but also manufacturers' brands in the drug industry uh, decline 4 and 5% just off of a press release. When Nike announces that they're distributing through Amazon, Nike shares go up, and all the other footwear companies and footwear retailers' stocks plummet. So we're headed to this weird singularity with Amazon where the entire consumer marketplace experiences big moves based on what Amazon does or does not do. Facebook is the one facing the most regulatory anger right now, I would say, from Washington because of the news that their platform had been weaponized by Russians. So to your question, who gets regulated is, the honest answer is I don't know. What I'm more confident of, of is where the regulation will come from, and it won't come from where people think it's going to come from. It's not going to come from D.C. It's going to come out of Brussels. Uh, the U.S. registers tremendous upside from these companies with some serious concerns around privacy, job destruction, tax avoidance. But we get tremendous upside in terms of national pride, economic growth, the largest recruiter from my class at Stern is Amazon. Europe registers a lot of the downside, but very little of the upside. And that is, they're not a source of national pride in Europe. They don't recruit nearly as many students out of the Bocconi or the University of Cologne as they do from MIT or Stanford. And the regulators there, I think it's stiff in their backbone, and I think you're going to see the mother of all fines or regulatory intervention come out of continental Europe. The war against big tech is about to break up, break out in Europe. It's interesting, because if you think back to 2000, 2001, and Microsoft was very much in the regulatory crosshairs as being a monopoly, and there was talk of 
should Microsoft be broken up? Should they proactively break themselves up? And all that sort of thing. But if you think about it, there was there was no love lost with Microsoft. Even people who used it in their work every day just sort of did it because they felt like they didn't really have any other choice. And these four companies that you've written about, to varying degrees, are loved by consumers. And there's not nearly the same amount of animus towards them as there was towards Microsoft. And I'm wondering if that alone helps them, or at least guards them to some degree against regulatory risk. It's a it's a great point, and and and, and your instincts are are correct. This they've they've learned from Microsoft that it's important. Your perception is really important as re, as it relates to regulatory intervention or the timing of regulatory intervention. These companies wrap themselves in a neon blue, a pink, or a rainbow blanket, and they're very open about their progressive values. And they'll fly Sheryl Sandberg around to talk about leaning in. Tim Cook, first openly gay, Fortune 500 CEO. And I'm in no way doubting their principles or that they, I believe they do believe these things. I think they are all inspiring people. I think Tim Cook and Sheryl Sandberg are impossible not to like. But they purposefully um, put this image out there, as I believe the progressives are seen as, in general, as nice but weak, which is the perfect cover for companies that during business hours act more like the spawn of Darth Vader and Ayn Rand. So whereas Microsoft had sort of this conservative bent to it, and Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates were seen as super smart, but kind of mean and cutthroat, which made it easier for elected officials and regulators to go after them because the public didn't have a good feeling. The public, until very recently, has had very warm and cuddly feelings about these companies. If Sheryl Sandberg was vehemently pro-life, I don't think Facebook would be setting up meetings and presentations for her for 500 industry executives in Cannes to all the female executives there. I think they purposely promote their progressive values to create an illusionist trick such that people think they're softer and cuddlier than they actually are. Coming up, more with Scott Galloway on Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and what keeps those companies up at night. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Thanks again to our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting this week's Motley Fool Money. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, your life in general. Well, Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple. It allows you to fully understand all the details and be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. That's what you want. It's a big deal getting a mortgage. You just want to make sure it's right for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill talking with Scott Galloway, author of The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page. What do you think keeps them up at night? Is it each other, or is it something else that worries them on a business level? Uh, I, I think it was each other until about till a few months ago. Now I think it's it's Washington. I think the person they're most scared of right now is a woman named Margaret Vestager, Marguerite Vestager, excuse me, who's the 
EU Commissioner on Competitiveness out of Europe. I think she has, if you will, I think she's the first regulator whose testicles have descended and is absolutely not afraid of these guys. And I think you're going to see the first $10 billion plus fine come out of Europe. Uh, you know, again, I mean, look at it this way. If Italy or Belgium looks at the four and looks at what they've done, they've, they've, they've welcomed these companies. If you look at what's happened to their economy, their jobs, their media companies, their, their technology companies, and then they look at China, which basically stole the IP of these companies and then created their own version, their own copycat versions of these companies. Who's better off? Distinct of the morality or trade agreements, who, what country made the better decision? And I think there's a decent argument that China made the better decision by stealing their IP and just ripping off these companies. Now, and I realize that's, you know, that's not how we do business in the West, but I think these companies in Europe are starting to say, you know, if, if there's job destruction here and they can be weaponized by an, a, a government that's an adversary of the West and we're not, rec- we're not recognizing a lot of upside, there aren't a lot of university buildings or hospital wings named after Facebook or Google millionaires in Europe, where there's a lot of them in the U.S., I think they're, they're coming to the conclusion that, you know what, there's not a lot of downside uh, to going after these guys because we're not getting the same upside as America's getting. I'm sure your publisher, even though your book has been out for just a week or so, I'm sure your publisher is already interested in a sequel. Let's just go ahead and assume it's going to be called The Five. If you had to add a fifth company to the list that you've put together who would you add and why? So arguably there is five, and the fifth would be Microsoft. They've performed exceptionally well the last two years. I think they now have the third largest market cap in the world, number two in cloud. They've just done a fantastic job on, on every dimension. I didn't include them because I think of them as more B2B, and I think of these companies as having more equity among consumers and being B2C. But What's fun is to say, well, who among the unicorns or the new guys could be the fifth horseman? A year ago, I would have said it was Uber. Right now, if you were to bet what company could get to three, four, five hundred billion right now, I would say it's probably Netflix. As at the end of the day, when you look at the four, they're really just operating systems for different key components of our life, whether it's information, media, or retail, they're operating systems. And Netflix is becoming an operating system for the joy in our lives, which is television, or the operating system for the second most important screen in our lives, which is, again, the TV. Millennials watch more or spend more time on Netflix than they do on the rest of cable television combined, meaning arguably Netflix should be worth more than all of the rest of cable television combined. Their use of artificial intelligence, their momentum, recurring revenue business model, Netflix is probably the good money for the next horseman. The mother of all battles or celebrity deathmatch, everyone talks about Amazon versus Walmart, People starting to talk about Google versus Facebook. I think the real big battle, the Ali Frazier of the information age, is shaping up, and it's going to be Amazon versus Netflix. I think Amazon is lining its troops up and is about to invade Netflix's core business. You have experience uh, with Amazon, uh, unlike your experience with these other three companies, in that you, once upon a time, competed directly with Amazon. You founded uh, Red Envelope, a multi-channel retailer that went public in 2002. What's it like to compete with Amazon? Uh, impossible. Uh, uh, Mickey Drexler, the former CEO of J. Crew and The Gap, summarized it perfectly. How do you compete with a large company that doesn't want to be profitable? 
And I maintain there is no such thing as a successful e-commerce company. And that is pure play e-commerce does not work and had predicted for several years that Amazon would open stores and was wrong for a long time. And finally, they purchased Whole Foods. But pure play single channel retail doesn't work. Consumers don't live in isolation of any one medium. And when you choose that one medium to be e-commerce, you're competing against a company that can operate a break-even that has somewhere between a thousand and a million times the scale that you have. So there is no such thing as a successful e-commerce company. There are successful retailers that leverage digital and e-commerce as a channel, but we were slowly, like every other e-commerce company in the world, bled to death, or the oxygen was slowly taken out of the room by a company that had access to much greater uh, capital at a lower price, and uh, outstanding execution. Effectively, Amazon can go underwater with the largest tank of oxygen. Everyone has to follow them and offer two-day free shipping, offer something around the same type of value proposition, but we all have smaller tanks of oxygen, and all of us are drowning. And there's one guy left in the water, and it's in Seattle. The book is The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. It is available everywhere you find books. Scott Galloway, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for your time. You can check out past episodes of Motley Fool Money and all of our podcasts by going to podcast.fool.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Anywhere you find podcasts, you can find The Motley Fool. Just click the subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review. Our email address is radio at fool.com. And for investing commentary and analysis 24-7, go to our website, fool.com. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey.